0: IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast brought to you by Insurance Business. I'm Paul Lucas, the Managing Editor of Insurance Business, and today, for the first time in this podcast series, uh, we're travelling to the Southern Hemisphere to meet one of the industry's leading figures, the CEO of the Australia and New Zealand Institute of Insurance and Finance, or ANZIF for short, Prue Wilsford. Prue, welcome to IB Talk.
0: Hi Paul, thanks very much for having me.
1: It's great to be talking to you again. Uh, How are you coping with the pandemic?
0: Well certainly Australia has been incredibly fortunate overall um, but like every country we remain on watch. Uh, As I think for everyone there's been joys and challenges but for me personally I must say uh, the family time has been a real joy.
1: I have to say you guys not just in australia but in new zealand as well seem to have coped incredibly well and i think the rest of the world um especially you know speaking about ourselves here in the uk and i think our our, our friends across in the united states as well are, are looking at you quite enviously and uh, as to as to how well you've handled it uh, what do you think has been the key to, to your success
0: well you know. Being an island, obviously, is an incredible privilege at times like this. You know, I I spent my entire childhood um, realising how far away Europe was and and desperately wanting to get there. And and it's been a great joy to go there quite a lot. Uh, But right now, I think the advantages of being able to control your borders have been uh, absolutely invaluable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously i want to, to to talk about yourself brew and um I know that you know in terms of getting your your start you actually uh, hold a, a bachelor of law from from queensland University of technology um so was your intention originally to focus on uh, the wider law sphere or were you always interested in the the sort of the regulatory side of finance how did that sort of take shape for you
0: <laughs> Oh I'd love to say there was a plan paul um <laughs> Look, when I was a kid, I was very interested in um, human rights. I was interested in workplace relations, um, the kind of the broader aspects of of society and and how they work. Uh, I, th- I think I really went into law. Um, I was the first person in in my branch of the family to go to university at all um, and and if I'm honest, I think I was fulfilling. What had been a dream of, of of my mother's when she was young to go to university, so you know u- university was very foreign to me. And really, it wasn't until I fell into work that uh, study and and education really really found its meaning for me.
1: So the first family member to, to to go into university was that. Were you sort of feeling the pressure from that? <laughs>
0: Oh, yes and no. I certainly felt that um, it was an expectation that I would go to university. And and I'm very grateful to my parents for creating that expectation. Because without that expectation, I don't know what, what choices I would have made. But education was always a huge priority in our family. Um, My parents really forwent a lot in their own lives in order to give each of us a private school education and to really stress the importance of of education in our
1: lives. So what made you focus, um, well, tell us in fact, what what was your sort of area of focus at at university? You know, which area of law did you kind of uh, narrow in on?
0: Well, I was. I found I was particularly good at contract law. Um, I remember really excelling in that. Look, honestly, I, I actually wasn't the best student. Uh, I was completing a commerce law degree, and probably partly because I didn't come from a family with a tertiary education, I didn't. I didn't really understand it particularly well. Um, What happened was I I actually moved to Sydney while I was still studying and when I became a part-time external student and a full-time worker, my marks went through the roof and it was partly because... Finally, I understood the application of what I was studying and, and it just gave that context. So again, I, I think for families who come from a history of that and they, they have role models in their parents and their older siblings, some of those things might have been more obvious. But for me, they, they're a journey of discovery. Um, and I, and I, I got my first job as, a, as an accountant at Macquarie Bank. And, and when I was a full-time worker, suddenly, you know, the penny dropped and, and I really enjoyed my studies from that point, and, and, and really flew. Well,
1: maybe there's some uh, some lessons to be learned for the education system there, then, to to, to make sort of courses a little bit more practical.
0: Look, it's a, it's a it's a great point, um, and certainly something I focus on a lot at ANZEF. Um, in in the Australian education sector, it's really broken into two parts, and degrees and above, which are taught, you know, via universities are really fundamentally focused on, on theory and the VET sector, the vocational education sector, where, where most of the global insurance educators, including Anzif, teach, is very much in the applied sector. And I do think that there is a, a complementary but different focus in in theoretical knowledge and practical and applied knowledge.
1: Yeah, for sure, I, I absolutely agree. So you, so, you mentioned that obviously you started out uh, Macquarie Bank. Uh, I know that you went to the the Investment Funds Association as well uh, before you transitioned. Um, I guess your your first take. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It, it, in insurance would be it would have been at Colonial Mutual back in uh, in 1994 as a group risk product manager. What made you sort of made that transition into the insurance world?
0: Again, such a you know comprehensive plan that I had in place, Um, not. Look, I was lucky enough to, when I worked at the Investment Funds Association, I was lucky enough to be on the government body that wrote the regulations for the Australian superannuation system. Uh, It was an amazing experience. I was involved with a broad range of big thinkers, uh, industry leaders, and people who were genuinely committed to the social purpose of superannuation and, and how to bring that alive. And, and you know, consequently, 30 years later, the Australian superannuation system is, is one of the best in the world in terms of, of having uh, a universal savings program uh, for, for our, our community. So I, I actually went to Colonial to run their retirement incomes book. And, and the grand plan in moving into uh, the group Life Insurance wasn't actually about the content, but it was because of the way Colonial was structured, it was the only job where you had responsibility for an end-to-end business. So you were responsible for sales, for product, for the outsourced service relationship and, and for managing all of the enforced business. And so for me, whilst the content was very interesting because I, I am interested in, in insurance, yeah. uh, it was primarily that opportunity to run an end-to-end business that was, was the key attraction.
1: Okay, so I I know obviously that um, in terms of your experience, you've you've worked really across a, a wide uh, variety of sectors across finance. I know you had a, a role in wealth as well. Um, how, tell us, because you, you were, spent a couple of years at National Australia Bank, um, tell us a little bit about how the insurance industry compares to perhaps other sectors within finance, so banking, wealth, etc.
0: Look, I, th- I think I think, at their core, when they're operating well, they are about um, growing economies. They are about increasing independence. They are about uh, sensible, calculated risk taking, and they're a, a really important part of our society. Um, I, I think, I think the higher order purpose that they serve across all financial services. Is actually really important and and something that I I like to aspire to personally. Um, In in terms of the the different parts, you know, it's been fascinating to me watching the rise and fall of of the bank assurance models and the difference in uh, credit assessment that drives that, and the difference in certainty of returns. So of course you know, insurance is very, very much a balance sheet game and you can have great reserving and you can have good years and bad. And so the predictability of those returns is is quite a different shape to the annuity style style business that you would find in in the pure banking sector. And so I think that the different uh, fundamental drivers there changes Uh, the way people view those businesses, and therefore the risk appetite of the people who actually participate in it as well. So they are um, similar in their broad social purpose. Uh, They're similar in their uh, complexities at at the higher end, um, but quite different in in terms of of how those returns can play out and what that means uh, in terms of managing a business overall.
1: So, if there are uh, perhaps some some young professionals out there listening to this and and they're sort of weighing up their own career and perhaps thinking about which area of of, of financial services to focus on, uh, what would you suggest that they take into consideration?
0: i think I think you have to go into something that you you really believe serves a purpose, and you certainly have to find an organisation where where there is a values alignment. And and that can operate in a whole different range of ways. It could be in a small startup. It could be in a mutual business. It could be in a for-profit business. Um, but understanding, you know, the broader purpose, knowing who you are to an extent, I think, is is very advantageous. But the the one one of the many things that I love about insurance, pe- people often say to me, "Oh, you know, we should be really focusing on on building degrees in insurance and." and you know, get, getting a, a standard degree. And I actually have quite the reverse view. I have a view that part of the reason that insurance uh, is successful is that it needs such a diverse range of skills. And so I often throw the question back and say, well, you name a degree and I will tell you a great career in insurance that you could have with that degree as your as your primary background. And so what, what I do think is, is wonderful in insurance is at any stage of your career, there is a job for you in insurance. So it's great for us to get uh, grads coming into our industry, it's also great for us to people, uh, attract people who might have 10 or 15 or 20 years experience in, in a very wide range of sectors because they will bring depth of knowledge of that sector, which will actually add to the overall insurance proposition.
1: Well at this stage of of your career of course you're the CEO of Anzif it was a, a role you took uh, I think about 7 years ago I've got to ask obviously female CEOs are sadly still pretty rare in insurance uh, and probably even more so 7 years ago um what was the reaction to your appointment and you know have you faced any I guess negativity or discrimination over the fact that you're a woman at the top
0: um Look, fortunately, I've got a, a fairly thick hide. So, so you know, and I, I think anyone who who takes a leadership role has to have uh, a reasonable level of, of belief in themselves. I was fortunate that my predecessor was also uh, a fabulous woman. Um, so certainly that was not new within within ANZEF, uh, and certainly not new within within um, the Australian New Zealand. Um, insurance insurance industry, so so that was that was certainly a great advantage, and I'm, I'm very grateful to Joan for many things, uh, but certainly that that's one of them. Pro- probably um, the challenge for me was was about self belief in taking a CEO role. So I'd I'd spent my career as 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 a really great two IC. Um, that that was how I viewed myself, like many women. I had uh, spent a long time in technical roles and I had built up a view of my competence based on my technical capability and my ability to contribute to the organisation through technical excellence. And that's very, very common trait in in female leaders. I was lucky enough to follow a great leader to an organisation that uh, specialises in working with vulnerable customers. And, and through that organisation, State Trustees, I was able to take on a much broader um, business leadership role. That, whilst my technical capabilities were useful, they were they're only a part of, 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 of the skill set that I needed to bring to the table. While I was there, I was lucky enough to join the board of Victoria University, which is a fabulous university in, in the west of Melbourne um, and very much aligned to my personal values. And I, I spoke with the, with the Chancellor um, when I was looking to change roles and, and he looked at me and, and said, well, you know, you're, you're clearly ready to be a CEO. And, and I actually stopped me in my tracks because I'd been thinking that I would look for another 2IC type role. And I'll be honest. Without his encouragement, I'm not sure I would have had the personal confidence to to apply for a CEO role. And certainly, when I was um, when I was offered the role, I was I was overjoyed. And and uh, I, th- I think for the first six months, I was absolutely pinching myself that I was fortunate enough to be given such an important leadership role within within the insurance industry. So it's um it often takes that outside voice to I think help us see ourselves better and to imagine ourselves in new ways and i'm I'm truly grateful to george for that coaching and encouragement uh, because honestly i'm not sure i would have had the confidence to to do it on my own
1: yeah and is that a voice that you're you're using yourself as well now i mean in terms of encouraging sort of other women to to go further in the industry
0: Oh, you bet I do. Um, Both formally and informally, um, I'm a a very big advocate, not just for women, but for diversity uh, in general. Um, You know, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it um, particularly through environments such as Victoria University, which is an incredibly diverse uh, student body, and that's then reflected in the in the organisation. I think in, in very positive ways. Australia is a very diverse. Um, society and as is New Zealand, um, ensuring that we are able to reflect that diversity in in our more senior roles does remain a challenge and it's something that uh, I have been known on occasion to make uh, one or two comments about.
1: So, um, so, ANZIF for our, our listeners outside of the region is um, it's a professional members, membership association for insurance. Uh, I believe it has around eighteen thousand members across uh, Oz. Is that right?
0: Actually, it's right across the Asia Pacific region. Uh, we yep. we actually have members in about fifty countries. But but having said that, the predominance of our members are Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, and China, and then Southeast Asia generally.
1: Super. So I I know one of the key focuses of the organisation is is on boosting trust and professionalism in the sector. Um, let's focus on the trust element if we can. Um, how how big of an image problem, for want of a better word, do you think insurance has in terms of actually being seen seen as trustworthy by the public? <laughs>
0: I think it's fairly self-evident to say that there there is quite a major challenge. Uh, That challenge has been increasing, particularly over the last decade. And there are certainly a wide range of of, uh, trust indicators that you could point to, in particular the Edelman Trust Index, but also a wide range of other studies that, that show that... Trust in financial services and trust in insurance in particular has been dropping significantly over the last decade to the point where probably about, about one in three people actually trust financial services institutions and, and that's, that's pretty low. Um, and and obviously a matter of, of of some concern and an area of great focus. And again, this is a global conversation, uh, and and it wouldn't matter whether I picked surveys from the UK, the US, um, or, or the Asia Pac region; they all have a very similar time.
1: Yes, yeah, so I and, and I appreciate that this is you know a question for which there are probably you know twenty answers at least. But if you were to sort of pinpoint one sort of big area or one big issue i should say that that insurance does have in terms of trust what is that what's what is the biggest problem if you want
0: gee that's that's a that's a big question um look i do i do think that the uh the sense of alignment of interests and general genuinely having the best interests of customers at heart is probably the fairly consistent gap. And again, it doesn't matter whether you look at um, uh, reviews that have happened in the US, in the UK, in Australia, they all come down to that alignment of interests gap.
1: So, so how does the image improve then? What are sort of the steps that the insurance companies can can actually be taking to, to, to make things better?
0: Well, Paul, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> look... There's probably a couple of elements uh, there. I, I'm I'm very fond of the Rachel Botsman uh, model for thinking about, thinking about trust. And and in, in the Rachel Botsman model, she says that trust is an outcome of being trustworthy. So if we want to increase trust, you know, it's this wonderful, nebulous thing that we can all talk about. But what we really need to do is focus on being trustworthy. And if we focus on doing that well and on being professionals, then, then we can actually make a difference. So first, firstly, I'd like to talk about professionalism because I do think actually professionalism matters. And, and then, then I'll talk about the elements of that trust model and, and again, how we can focus on, on improving trust in, in our sector. So professionalism is something that I think that really matters. There's 2,000 years of research, and those 2,000 years of research have broadly come up with three things that are the cornerstone of any profession. First is um, commitment to ethics. You must be committed to ethics. The second is certification to a body of knowledge. So this isn't just time in the job, this isn't just learning on the job. You actually commit to being certified externally um, through um, examination or orals, a range of ways that that can be done. And then the third element is a commitment to lifelong learning. There is no profession in the world that does not expect you to stay current uh, in order to be able to call, be call, to call yourself a professional, so they're the three elements of being a professional, and the fourth element is around being a profession. We always talk about this as the insurance industry, and and that is fair because whilst we have many 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 people who are professionals by that definition, a profession actually is compulsory. And so that is is the the fourth element that would actually transition our um, industry into being a profession. And I do think that that's something worthy of thinking about over time. Uh, Certainly, uh, regulators have often set minimum standards, but again, when you look around the world at where regulators step in and put in minimum standards, They are predominantly around consumer protection. So that's why distribution and broking has minimum standards in so many jurisdictions. It's it's not about the regulators wanting brokers to be professionals. It's predominantly about consumer protection. And if you understand that that driver is different and and then think about the consequences of that, um, that does make you think about whether it's a professional or not.
1: So, uh, I was going to say, aside from you know, just kind of ticking the regulatory boxes, if you want, for for insurance brokers, um, what are the steps that you devise that they take to to be more transparent in their own business?
0: Look, I think I think um, again, there are lots of brokers who do grad jobs. Um, I think really focusing on understanding your client, having a genuine relationship with your client, being able to add value through risk assessment. That is the role of a broker. Those who are transactional, those who are order takers, their day is done. Um, I do think that you know computers and uh, technology will replace a lot of that, that basic work. And so for those who who really add value through quality advice, which really does understand the customer and put the customer at the centre of that conversation, they have a glorious and valuable future. So I think the transparency around that uh, does go to disclosure of fees. It goes to fee for service or, or, or not so much commissions versus fee for service. It's more about the disclosure of that and being proud of the value that they add to that customer. So I do think that there's quite a lot uh, that they can do around their service models. But of course, she would say this, wouldn't she? Um, I do think that standing forward as a profession is actually also an element in being a trusted advisor to business
1: it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, certainly, I was going to come to the point around broker commission uh, myself, and you know, do, do you think then that it, there is there is that necessity if you want that the brokers be sort of upfront and honest about the fees and the commissions that they pick up, et cetera.
0: Look, it's 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 a personal view, um, but my my view is um, I I have a broker. I I really value their advice. They've been fantastic for me over over a long time, and I. I would have no problem in paying it um, because I actually understand that they give me advice. So I actually, for me, think that by, um, by not disclosing their fee, I think it undervalues the genuine advice that, that they do give me.
1: Now, I, I don't want to tag sort of Australia and New Zealand in together because I appreciate that they are, you know, <laughs> very, very, very different places and, and, and different mentalities as well I, for my short time there. Um, but tell me, you know, when you look at Australia and New Zealand and, and compare to the wider world, um, do you think that there's anything that the the region can either learn from for example the uk and the us or indeed do you think that there's anything that that you know your region can can teach the rest of the world in terms of its approach to to sort of trust and professionalism
0: Look, I think I think the um, the mature markets all all look to each other in, in different ways, and certainly you know Australia um, looks particularly to the UK. Uh, and there are so many similarities, whether it be through um, uh, our legal structures, uh, our regulatory approaches. You know, there's there's a lot to learn, and, and as I often say, learning from each other's mistakes is often more powerful than than just learning from, from what went well because sometimes it's, it's hard to actually untangle the drivers of why things have gone well because there are, are so many interlocking parts of society that come together. In terms of the trust equation, look, broadly, um, the numbers are the same in all of the jurisdictions. So the reality is none of us are doing it well. Um, I'd love to say it was different. Um, I'd love to say that um, there there was some clever thing that we could all learn from each other and do, but I actually think that it is uh, an element where we have to really focus on on the long game and being consistent, uh, really focusing on integrity, really focusing on our customers so that we can collaboratively grow that trust equation.
1: So, if I am, um, you know, sort of a, a high street broker, uh, and I'm listening to this conversation now, and I'm thinking to myself, I agree with with everything that the saying, and I want to take the steps to to make my business, you know, more trustworthy, more transparent. What's sort of step number one, if you want? What's the the, the mm-hmm. first step in the line?
0: Well, if I if I return to mm. the Rachel Botsman trust model, she would say that there are two fields that relate to trustworthiness and the first is about capability. So in capability there are two elements, competence and reliability. So am I competent? Are all of my people competent? Do they have the skills, knowledge and resources that will enable them to service that customer well? And can they do it reliably? Are they timely? Are they consistent? So that's am I capable? And I do think that actually doing an assessment across your business of of your customers, what are your customers' needs and who are your employees and are they skilled in actually servicing those customers is, is a really good first step. You know, trying to please every customer is not a recipe for success. The businesses that I see doing really clever things are often quite Quite specific in in either the industries that they target or the types of customers they target, and they make sure that their service proposition is matched to that, and they also make sure that their employee skill set is capable of delivering that, capably and reliably. The second element, sorry, no, no, go ahead. The second second element is really around the character of the organisation, and again, the Botsman model would say there are two elements to that which is empathy and integrity. So in terms of empathy, do your your employees have the ability to really understand the needs of those customers? Can they empathise with them? And that goes back partly to what I was saying about, um, you know, there's a job for every degree in insurance. If you're selling medical indemnity insurance, do you have people who actually have a variety of health backgrounds? If you're working in the mining sector, have you hired mining engineers who can actually talk the talk with their customers? And the final element is integrity. Are you aligning the best interests of your customers with your organisation? Do you genuinely put the needs of the customer first? And are you clear when there's not an alignment? So if those four elements come together well, competence and reliability forming capability and empathy and integrity forming character, you can assess whether your business is well positioned to build trust in the segments that you've chosen to play in.
1: Some, some fantastic tips um, I want to ask you Prue when you're not sort of driving trust and professionalism across just a mere 55 countries um, <laughs> I, 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 I believe that you're a you're a keen uh, walker and you're a dog owner as well
0: I am indeed um, I'm I'm the owner of a couple of dogs I do do live in the middle of the city which which people often think you know it's difficult to own pets but I'm I, I love the dogs for for many reasons but one of the reasons I love the dogs actually does have to do with mental health so I was um lucky enough to have an awesome track coach when I was when when I was in high school a wonderful wonderful man called John Small and and he always had a, a few great phrases one was um miles in the legs are like dollars in the bank they're there when you need to draw on them but he also always said that The hardest part of going for a run is pulling on your shoes. And every morning I get up and I take the dogs for a walk. I usually walk about five or six k's and, you know, Melbourne is blessed with beautiful parks and gardens, a lovely river, uh, fantastic walkways, and that, that ability to get out first thing in the morning and to contemplate, to reflect, um, all of the studies in mental health indicate that that getting out first thing in the morning, getting a bit of melatonin, uh, making space in your day is incredibly good for your mental health. And I know that, um, you know, with dogs, you sort of don't have a choice. Um, and so the pleasure that they've given me over, over many years of, of getting me out of bed, I'm, I'm not a jump out of bed person. I'm a more of a roll out of bed person. Um, but but they, they are awesome for my mental health. I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you with, with Julie Bean curled up on my lap um, and and you know they are they are full of joy and it doesn't matter what your day's been like when you walk through the door. Uh, they are always happy to see you. So for anyone um, who, who can, I, I cannot recommend dog ownership enough because it, it's good for you in so many ways.
1: Yeah, when those when those puppy dog eyes look at you in the morning, that's, that's your <laughs> mo- that's your motivation to get up out of bed, isn't it? Um, t- and t- Absolutely. T- as well, yeah, Australia must be you know a- a- an incredible place to 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 walk. I mean, you know, just from from a tourist perspective, you know, you think about the coast, you think about the Blue Mountains, etc. I mean, there there must be some wonderful options. Do you have some some favourite places to to walk with in Australia?
0: Oh look, that they're also different. Um, I grew up in the north, which is tropical rainforest area, and you know if you're ever lucky enough to get up around Cairns and the Daintree, that that's truly spectacular. When I moved to the south to Melbourne uh, about 25 years ago, I I loved exploring cold climate rainforest. So the Dandenongs and the areas around there are just breathtakingly beautiful and particularly at this time of year it's autumn here so the trees have turned you know there's lovely rivers amazing forests uh, which of course unfortunately do burn a bit in summer um which which is a a bit of a drawback in australia um but but the cool climate rainforests really are truly truly spectacular
1: yeah with those options i'm sure you have some very very happy dogs Um, Prue this has been terrific thank you very much for joining us uh, sadly we are out of time in fact we've massively overran but that's okay oh sorry um, no no that's that's all down to me don't worry uh but ev- everybody thank you very very much for tuning in um we'll be back next week with another edition of IB Talk on behalf of of Prue Wilsford and myself uh take care everybody and we'll see you next time
0: thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes.